Thank you all for, for coming. Today we're going to be talking about why does the church need us to pursue academic excellence, and we have with us today Dr. Malcolm Yarnell, who is the research professor of systematic theology at uh, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, so our uh, sister seminary down in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, he's also been giving the page lectures on, uh, which have been mainly focused on Anabaptist, um, and so uh, you've probably already heard of him in, in chapel or um, have, have seen uh, some advertisement for, for him already. But Dr. Yarnell, thank you for being with us uh, today. And let's uh, go ahead and get started with uh, the question, why does the church need us to pursue academic excellence? <clears throat> why does the church need us to pursue academic excellence? Um, first of all, Dougal, I appreciate the invitation to, to come in to, uh, to talk about this subject. And it's, that's a question that... Um, that I ask myself quite often, um, and it has to do with my own sense of calling. Um, I think whatever the Lord gives us to do, we must pursue it with excellence. We must be, um, we must be holy. The, uh, the command of Jesus in Matthew 5, uh, 48 is to, to be holy even as there Father in heaven is, and the word there uh, should be uh, or could be translated as perfection or excellence, and this is the goal that we have for those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ is to pursue excellence, to pursue perfection, the perfection of God, and so I, I think it's I think it's very important uh, uh, to to do that and. I would have to say that the older I become, uh, the clearer it becomes to me that the life that I lead must be pursued with excellence. It must be done in every way possible uh, for God's glory. And if I'm going to do, be doing it for God's glory, I don't need to have any area of my life uh, that is undisciplined, uh, that is sloppy, if you will, uh, but that I do uh, pursue uh, excellence, that I pursue perfection, that I pursue to separate my entire life out for God and to live a life that God would look at and say, now that's beautiful. I want to live a life that's beautiful for God. And my end goal, I mean, the whole reason for my existence is that one day I want to be able to approach my Lord in glory, bow at His needs, and I hope to hear him say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. That's, and so I, I want to do everything in my life uh, with that goal in mind. Not, by the way, to be saved, <laughs> but out of thankfulness, out of appreciation for who he is and what he's done. And I mean, I want to be more like him, and I think he's excellent. And so that would be my general response. So what might that look like, or how will that play itself out in the academic life? What is excellence? You know, the, the, <clears throat> first of all, let's make sure that we recognize there is, um, most of us look at Christianity and our walk with Christ to be something different uh, from academic excellence. And I don't think there's a division between the two. Uh, here we are at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And the seminary uh, is established and funded 
and governed uh, by Southern Baptists. And uh, Southern Baptists, as churches, have come together in order to establish this academy, among other academies, in order to help the churches uh, to pursue their own call, their own commission, the Great Commission. And if we're going to do that, uh, if, if the churches have established that, then we need to do that well. What this points out to me is that this dichotomy, this division that we've had between the academy and the church is really uh, um, an inappropriate division. I'm an academic. There's just no doubt about it. It's in my character. It's in my, um, my life, my uh, calling. The things I do, I, I love to read. Uh, I would rather read than almost anything else. I love to write. I love to think. I love to discuss with people uh, theology. Um, and so being academic for me is kind of a second, uh, just a second nature for me. I'm human, and I'm an academic, you know. And, uh, and so I... I I, I, I privilege the academic life somewhat naturally, but the academy does not exist for itself. And I would argue that the primary audience for the Christian academic is not the academy. The primary audience is the church. So as a, as a Christian academic, as a theologian, and I am an academic theologian, uh, you know, Erasmus of Rotterdam taught that all Christians are theologians. And so if you're a Christian, you are a theologian. Uh, but I write books uh, in order to explain the faith. I teach students. Um, and so I'm an academic uh, theologian. In reality, I'm just doing theology uh, in a more concentrated way, a more intentional uh, way uh, from an intellectual perspective than other Christians, but I'm really doing nothing that other Christians should not also be doing. And so I pursue excellence as an academic theologian, keeping two communities in mind, the academy and the church. And I would argue that the church is the primary community and that the Christian Academy exists from and for the church. Uh, the seminary, let me say something a little, that may sound a little sketchy at first, but I think it would be helpful. The seminaries were not established by Jesus Christ. The seminaries were established by the churches, which were established by Jesus Christ. <laughs> And so from a uh, divine authorization perspective, uh, the, the academy uh, does not exist with a direct creation uh, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Christ established the church, and the academy comes alongside to help the church. And so I, I would want to keep those two communities in mind and remember that we do not exist primarily for the academy, we exist for the church. Now, this has, by the way, a practical outworking. Uh, often, uh, Baptists and other free churches are, uh, are, are sometimes a little nervous about their academic credentials, their academic qualifications. 
And so there have been attempts throughout history to make ourselves more presentable uh, to, the, uh, to be received by the academy, to be recognized as excellent by the broader academy. And I would argue that that is really not a, a proper outlook. That is something that perhaps we should be cultivating. And I, because of my own pursuit for excellence, I actually want to be academically respected. But my primary audience, my primary authorization uh, comes from the churches and for the churches as an academic. So I view the role of the pastor, the role of the missionary, the role of the evangelist, the role of the Sunday school teacher, the role of the average Christian. Uh, I'm here to serve them. And so keep these two audiences in mind as you're even speaking of excellence and remember that the primary pursuit of excellence is as a Christian and it is Christian excellence. So since Southeastern is very big on the Great Commission and um, you know we, we train a lot of pastors here as well, let's talk a little bit about academic work and the pastor and the missionary um, and, and so we'll, we'll kind of combine two questions here. And the first is, how does uh, the academic work that we do here, even if we're going to be sent, how does that prepare us for that and how can that um, uh, shape us? And then also, the other question would be, if I'm not going to be a, an academic theologian or an academic Old Testament scholar or New Testament scholar, um, how, does, how does this academic work actually impact me spiritually and prepare me for ministry? Yeah. Well, those are two big questions. Uh, on, the, on the first question, you know, uh, for pastors and missionaries and uh, other teachers, let's remember what the Great Commission uh, commands. Uh, so we are to go. We are to make disciples. Making a disciple means proclamation of the gospel. If you're going to proclaim the gospel, you had uh, better know what the gospel is, which means that you have to have a clear idea in your mind of the gospel. One of the questions I had when I was uh, ordained as a minister, um, I was asked, you know, how would you define the gospel? And, you know, I had been through uh, seminary, and never heard anybody define the gospel. And I thought to myself, that's a beautiful question. So, I mean, I just started quoting scripture, and, you know, I gave a passable answer. But it actually, uh, that, that, that question which came out of the churches uh, has uh, helped shape my understanding of my role as a teacher. And if you're going to be preaching the gospel, you need to preach the gospel with excellence, which means that you need to understand what the gospel is how the gospel is to be received, and, uh, and, and that means you need to have it down in your mind, not just from an intellectual perspective of a definition, but how does the gospel work? What does the gospel do to our lives? And so uh, I, I think that's really important. Let's also remember this. The Great Commission says not only to make a disciple, which means that you have to know the gospel and you have to know how to proclaim it well, which means that you have to know the people that you're proclaiming it to, all, all these things, you're, you're discovering uh, how to do these things in your various courses. But then uh, after baptism, which, by the way, involves an important doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity. At least I think it's important. I wrote a book on it because I thought it was so important. Um, but then the final part of the Great Commission is to teach all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Teaching. So what does doctrine 
mean? Doctrina is the Latin uh, for teaching. And so when you are engaged in doctrine, when you're engaged in dogmatic formulation, you are actually preparing yourself to help others to understand the will of God. And did you notice the total teaching all things whatsoever I have commanded you? And, of course, to teach is not only to give across intellectual it is to form the human character, which means that there is something transformative and spiritual that is occurring when you are teaching. And so teaching uh, all things involves the totality of Scripture. It involves the totality of the Christian life, bringing it under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You're teaching to obey. You're not just teaching about you're teaching why and how to bring your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so I look at the Great Commission, I look at our mission as integrally involving theological formation. And so I, I, think, it, I, I think the Great Commission, if you're going to obey the Great Commission, you have better be a good theologian. Karl Barth had the definition of theology in this way. To him, the task of theology is to critique the preaching of the church. Now, um, I run into pastors periodically who know me, and the, sometimes they're a little, bit, little intimidated because they think if I hear them, uh, then I'm going to make judgments about what they're preaching to make sure they're in line with correct doctrine, which is why usually I don't let myself be known to somebody until after that. And that way all their nervousness goes away until right after, and then they're really nervous. But <laughs> I, I, I don't want to do away with that idea because I think Bart was on to something. A theologian needs to take the preaching of the church, not you know just this sermon or that sermon, but how we as a people are preaching in this culture or these cultures uh, where the people to whom we are preaching reside. Which means that I had better understand the gospel, the biblical gospel, I'd better understand the culture. And it is my job as a theologian, using the tools of history, this library is filled with history, by the way, using the tools of scripture and the languages, the Greek and the Hebrew, using... Uh, the tools of philosophy and theological ethics, taking these things, combining them with cultural studies, and then looking at what we're preaching today and asking ourselves, are we being faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we really being faithful? Are we transforming the gospel into something that is not a gospel and bringing ourselves under the anathema that, uh, that, that Paul was clear uh, that we should not preach another gospel. And so I, I, I think it's important for, uh, for ministers to come and to learn to be sharper theologians. You're already a theologian. Now the question is, is are you going to be a good theologian or a bad theologian? And a good theologian is not one who's necessarily defined by my systematic theology. A good theologian 
is one who is being led by the Lord to constantly go back to Scripture and check his or her own uh, theology. And so I think it, um, it, it requires an ongoing task to engage in a doctrinal formation. And uh, the purpose of the academy is to help our ministers to do that. I also think that uh, in the academy we need to get uh, more tied into the local churches than we have been. Uh, and, uh, and that means getting theological education also out into the churches um, and pursuing that with excellence. Now, uh, this is not a question yet, and uh, I don't know that you're going to ask this question, but I want to say this. What I've discovered as a theologian is, is that the greatest impact that I have on people comes uh, from being clearly faithful to the Word of God. And so all of my uh, doctrines must be filtered uh, through, uh, uh, th through the gospel, uh, through Scripture. I don't, that's not me. Presidential alert. Yeah, it's a test. Yeah, it's a test. <laughs> okay. Um, not president of the U.S.? No, no, yes, it is. It is? Okay. That's later then. All right, thank you. <laughs> um, let me get back. <laughs> you kind of shook me up there. So whenever I'm, uh, one thing that I've been learning is, is that I, I have a greater impact as a teacher when my students recognize that I am bringing my thoughts, my actions, uh, my beliefs, everything is being brought back to the Word of God and being judged again and again and again by Scripture. But if I'm going to be convincing in that way, it's not, and this goes back to this issue of forming character, I have to be the right person who is teaching the right doctrine. And so I'm a big believer in orthodoxy. But if I'm a teacher of orthodoxy whose life is besmirching the wondrous work that my Lord has done, people aren't going, they're going to have excuses not to hear from my Lord. And I don't want to put a stumbling block in people, uh, in front of people. I want them to, to see not me so much as the Christ behind me who is transforming me that they can see through me him. Which means in some ways I have to disappear so that people are no longer seeing Malcolm. Uh, they're seeing Christ in me. And as, as they see Christ in me, they encounter God. Which means that the words that are on my lips must constantly be the word of God. Of course, it is the Word of God is filtered through my own life, which means that my life must be a constantly consecrated vessel for the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit of God working in my life as I proclaim the Word of God, I believe has power in other people's lives. And that's my passion and so I want spiritual perfection in this life, which then I think comes out in other areas of life seeking perfection. 
not a perfectionism. Now, I can get into perfectionism. That's not the answer. Um, but a, a search for holiness, for a life totally consecrated to Christ, so that even when I'm making mistakes, even, even when I'm uh, in uh, uh, struggling because I have a health issue or I'm struggling with a sin, the, the Lord is working on me in such a way that it's evident to other people that God is real in that person's life, and therefore I can hear God through that person. One thing I've discovered about the current generation, if I can uh, attach this a little more, the younger generation today is very concerned for an authentic Christianity. <coughs> style, yeah, and we all like style. I mean, look at Dr. Ecker. <laughs> look at Dr. Locke. These guys have style. I don't have style. As a matter of fact, I, you know, the only reason my clothes look this way is because my wife dresses me. I have no, no, no style, okay? And, and so styles change, don't they? And styles can become stale. And subcultures and generations can shift. What people are concerned about is to really hear the Word of God, which means the authentic Word of God, which means that I have to be authentic, and if there's not that authenticity, then people tune us out. I think that there has been, uh, within my own lifetime, uh, a, a, a generational shift towards the absolute necessity of authenticity. And uh, yes, that takes cultural forms, of course, because we're human beings. Uh, but they're looking for something deeper. They're looking for something other than style. And that is the reality. Is this person truly a believer in Jesus Christ? Not is this per does this person check the list of what a previous generation thought was authentic? No, no. Is this person really authentic? And then for the authentic teacher, the one who is pursuing excellence, to preach the word of God which makes us excellent, and then to see that in a person's life, that has a power in it. And the people that have most affected me as a theologian, are not the ones who are, are, are powerful in the ways of man, but they're authentic. They're authentic in spirit. Uh, Dr. Locke and I were talking earlier about a man that has been a mentor in both of our lives, Dr. James Leo Garrett. He is truly the last of the gentleman theologians. And he's retired now, and both of us yearn to be like Dr. Garrett. And it's not because of his generation. I can still remember. Was he still wearing the, uh, remember he used to carry a bunch of pins in his pocket? And he had the plastic holder. And I just, you know, I wanted to take and just take that plastic holder out and tell him that's, that style is gone, Dr. Garrett. That's actually from the 1950s. But, <laughs> but I never did. But you know what made his life so attractive to me as a theologian? And, I, and his, his books are in this library. He's a great theologian. Was the authenticity of his character. And I wanted to learn theology from him. And so I do think that excellence has to do with our character, with who we are as human beings. And then it will come out in our words. And it will make our words more believable. There are, uh, there are three theologians, Dr. Keithley and I were talking this morning and lamenting. There are three major theologians who've had moral falls uh, 
that we've discovered in the last few years uh, that have really tainted how we even read their works now. Uh, one of them, an Anabaptist theologian, John Howard Yoder. Uh, another one, a neo-Orthodox uh, theologian uh, by the name of Paul Tillich. But then the greatest theologian, really honestly the greatest theologian of the 20th century, Karl Barth. And their moral lives are their, their, their lack of true morality, their inauthenticity, uh, shapes how we read their works. And I think that's unfortunate. And so... If I'm going to have my Lord say to me, well done, thou good and faithful servant, it may be that I have to actually have a transformed life, which means that the Word of God that I'm trying to explain also has to constantly be working in my life. So let's look at that um, aspect of the academic life from um, a slightly different perspective, getting into that question of, you know, how is academic work spiritual work, but maybe driving at it a little bit of how does the academic uh, lifestyle, um, not just the learning, but also the practices that we, um, or the habits that we partake of, how does that inform our our spiritual walk, and how does that keep us, you know, in yeah. um, our Christian walk, you know, not yeah. straying to the right or to the left? Yeah. Um. Well, let me approach this from both a spiritual and then an academic uh, perspective. Uh, so from a spiritual perspective, I mean, I, I have my daily Bible time with the Lord. And several times a week, my family and I have our daily Bible time together in addition to my personal Bible time. And so every morning I get up, I mean, the first thing I do after making my tea is to read the Word of God. And so I, I read the Word of God, and my wife will often join me, and, uh, and she will be reading the Word of God, and sometimes we'll discuss with one another uh, about what God's Word uh, is saying to us uh, personally. Um, and I find that shapes my character. Those days when I do not have that personal uh, Bible study are days that I have more struggles uh, than normal, and uh, I, I discover why. I remember why. <laughs> Uh, one thing, by the way, that helps me keep uh, faithful in that is that I'm leading 10 young men in their own personal Bible time. So every morning I text them their Bible reading for the day. And so that holds me accountable. And I usually give them a, a sentence or two to encourage them about what it, what it means. Um, but also on other aspects of spiritual formation, I'm teaching a uh, spiritual formation course this semester, which I normally don't teach in the seminary because I'm, uh, I'm filled up with other responsibilities. But I, I was asked to teach a spiritual formation course, and I thought, well, I'll do it this semester. And most of the time we think of the spiritual formation classics, we don't think of Augustine uh, because Augustine is a church father who writes sometimes difficult-to-interpret books um, so what I did with my spiritual formation students was I, I'm having them read Augustine. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's interesting because as they read Augustine, and we're reading his confessions, um, if you've never read that, you really need to. Uh, but we're reading his confessions, and at, at one moment, he'll be throwing scripture at you, classical philosophy at you, some type of heresy that he's refuting, large worldview ideas as he struggles with his sin. And I think, it's a, I think it's a great text because it stretches you spiritually at the same time that it is stretching your mind academically. 
And then throughout the rest of the day, I take uh, from a practical perspective, there's not anywhere I go that I don't have a book with me. Now, I like, um, I like books on paper. Uh, I think, you know, I remember books by the, the feel of the page, and I can often associate ideas and uh, uh, theologians with certain book covers even, you know, or even the feel of the book cover. Uh, and my mind gets attached to that. And so uh, otherwise, other than when I'm reading a, a blog post or a, uh, a journal article, which I do read on my iPad, I typically have a book with me. And I, I don't go anywhere without a book. I've always got a book with me. So that if there's some downtime somewhere, uh, then I have a book with me and I'm reading. Now, we're in a library. I don't typically borrow my books from the library except to make a photocopy because one of the disciplines I have is to write in my book. Don't do that to your library books. Yes. Uh, but I, I write in my books, and that helps me to remember uh, what I've read and to make sure that I've got their ideas down. And, uh, and, and just a quick note, when I'm writing uh, in my own books, uh, if I write just in the uh, margin, and it's, I'm summarizing their ideas, I just write. If I have my own evaluation, I put it in brackets. And that keeps me honest in making sure that my critique of whatever I'm writing ought not to be confused with what is actually being said. Um, one other thing, you know, typically I, I don't express my feelings, but for the first time the other day, I actually wrote LOL next to a theologian's uh, paragraph just because I thought it was absolutely hilarious. He was being serious, but it was a ridiculous argument, so I had to just write LOL. But, uh, so I interact with my books. Um, interacting with books is fun. For an introvert like me, interacting with a book is fun because they don't talk back to you. Uh, they don't get upset at you. They don't misinterpret you. You can misinterpret them, but they don't misinterpret you. <laughs> and so I, 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 I like books in that way, but I also want to be, as a scholar, uh, to be clear in my own mind what is the difference between what the author is saying and my own critique of the author. And sometimes uh, people forget that. Plus, it's helpful when you're writing an article or a book to, to quickly go back and remember exactly what page that is on. I've got a pretty good memory, but I do not have a photographic memory. And so that, that type uh, of, of work. And, that, and so on a practical level, I'm always reading. I read constantly. Um, my wife jokes with me. She, she says, you know, if there's anything that I've ever worried about you for, it's, it's not another woman. It's those books. <laughs> Just because I like the books. And so I've had to learn to take and sometimes put the book down and pay attention. Uh, but why, do, why am I engaging with books? Because I like to learn from people, which is also why I engage in conversations with people. I do believe the best theology, uh, the best theological formation is pursued. Excellence is found when we're sharpening one another. It's less likely for me to go astray theologically um, in my uh, dogma or in my moral uh, theology, it's less likely for me to go astray if I'm having a conversation with you and we're helping each other to interpret the Word of God and apply the Word of God better. And so I, 
I'm in constant conversation with people in many venues. I mean, you know, from social media uh, to walking down the hall uh, to having lunch with students in the cafeteria uh, to talking to colleagues uh, at, at other institutions, at my own institution. Um, th those, those, con those theological conversations can give you uh, ideas that, that help you to interpret the Word of God better. I've, I've always struggled with uh, one statement in Matthew 18, the discipline passage, that I never quite understood until just a few weeks ago, a layman uh, pointed out, I think, and it, this is what the Lord means here. And, and the more I thought about it and went back and looked at the Greek on it, I thought to myself, this man is brilliant. Now, that's from a layman, and I learned from him. And, and I, I think those types of conversations help us to avoid mistakes. You can be the most brilliant thinker, but if you're not thinking with other people, you're going to make some really bad mistakes. And so we need each other. And so I think excellence and intellectual excellence uh, involves interaction with the primary sources, with secondary sources, and with other uh, uh, scholars and with other Christians. And it's a, a constant conversation. I am a learner. I had this idea, I don't, I don't know about you, but I, whenever I first went into seminary, I, Dr. James Lear Garrett was my uh, systematic theology professor. I presumed his job was to take the perfect systematic theology and give it to me, and I was supposed to memorize it. And he could do that. I mean, the man is an a walking encyclopedia. He, he could do that. But one of the things he taught me was to be in a constant mode of learning. So I'm an educator who's also a learner. I view theological education as a journey. And I just happen to be a little more experienced in walking the road of theology than my students are. But that doesn't mean that I can't learn from them. I want to learn from them. And for the more advanced students who are engaged in deep theological research, I love taking on PhD students because I'm learning from them as they get deeper into the primary and the secondary sources. And they drive me to be a more excellent theologian. And so those, those conversations, as well as the readings, are what are uh, driving us uh, towards academic excellence. So in some ways, we could say that in, in certain academic communities, it, it almost mirrors the church as well. Um, it ought to. In, yeah, it ought to. I, like, I see that with our um, staff here, that, or our faculty here, that we actually are a very good community and, and we're providing feedback to one another and helping us uh, in our journey, academic journey. So that's, um, I just wanted to kind of point that out because I don't think that students necessarily see that connection. Yeah. Um, that, that what they're doing in their academic work is actually mirrored uh, in the church. Um, yeah. Whether it's, like you said, just listening and learning from yeah. everyone. Like that. Well, one thing that I, I find interesting is that in the, in the uh, modern West, especially after the Enlightenment, uh, our idea of the mind is uh, an idea that is primarily intellectualized. So if you'll go back to the great commandment, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, the, the Greek word is nous, right? And Jesus actually added that word. So if you go back to Deuteronomy, 
to the Shema, what you'll discover is that we're commanded to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and strength. Jesus added mind. Why did he add mind? Well, maybe it had something to do with the fact that this is a more Hellenistic culture where the mind is important. But then you look at the word noose, and what you discover is that Scripture's treatment of the mind is somewhat different than our understanding of the mind. Most of us think of the mind as that thing that we have in our head, right? It has to do with the brain, and it is primarily an intellectual capacity. So our anthropology is has taken the mind and constricted it over here, over against the will and the emotions and the heart. You've got the mind, and so we have a purely intellectualized understanding of the mind. That's not the biblical understanding of the mind. The mind in Scripture is more holistic. It actually morphs over and includes the heart and the will and the emotions. The totality of a whole of a human person is who they are. And the mind captures so much more than our compartmentalized intellectualization. So to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, does include the intellectual part of the human character. But it includes so much more. And so if I'm going to love the Lord my God, I've got to love him with my mind. That means I need to be excellent in my academics. Now, there are some people that say, well, I don't want to talk about doctrine. I want to talk about missions, right? Well, you'd better talk about doctrine because missions has to do with preaching the gospel. And if you don't have the right gospel, you could be on mission all day and be under judgment for that mission. So you need to have a proper understanding of the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? How does the gospel work? How broad is the gospel? To whom does the gospel apply? Now, these types of questions are the questions that we have to answer through a, a, a real engagement of our mind with the gospel as it is given to us in biblical text. And from there, as we're engaged with our minds, as we're teaching, that's our mission. And so I view academics and ministry and mission is all tied together in helping to make sure that I'm actually obeying the Great Commission and loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. One other thing about the mind, just while we're at it, Paul wrote, but we have the mind of Christ. He didn't say, but we have the minds of Christ. If you want to find out what God thinks, if you want to find out what Jesus thinks, then you've got to get with other believers. You've got to be in the church because that's where the mind of Christ is. It's not, I have the mind of Christ, and therefore I'm delivering to you ex cathedra from behind the podium what you need to believe, and you'd better line up with my personal creed. No, that's not it at all. The creed is something that the church garners from its reading of Scripture. And that is where the mind of Christ is. The mind of Christ is in the church. And that's the church, not just 
the church that is around you in a bodily form currently, but the church that has been here since Jesus rose from the dead and commissioned the first apostles and sent his spirit upon them at Pentecost. That, that is where the church is, which means that I need to consult the early church fathers. I need to consult the medieval theologians. Now, there's a great weakness in evangelical theology. We don't know much about medieval theology. I would dare say that some of the errors I've seen uh, with regard to the Trinity in recent years would have been solved if some of these evangelical theologians had had uh, uh, some patristic or medieval theology in their own background, they would have known not to go here because you go there and you're going to make this mistake. And, and the reformers, and not, by the way, just a certain set of reformers, I love the Anabaptists. Well, I don't just read the Anabaptists, I read Luther. I, lead, I, I read the Reformed. I read the Anglicans. I even read the, the counter-reformers in the Roman Catholic Church. Because I want to know, I also read the modern theologians. Uh, not because I always agree with them. I, I remember the first time I read Schleiermacher's uh, famous book, The Speeches to the Cultured Despisers of Religion. There were a lot of notes in brackets next to his text. Because I, I don't like liberalism. Still don't. Um, and, and so, but I still read them because I can learn from them. And so I have to learn from the church. I have to be with the church. I have to have conversations. Uh, and if I'm going to have a mind that is fashioned and ready to teach in a proper way, I need to be constantly learning. I need to be constantly submitting my mind to Christ. I think the, as I, I think of theologians like Bart and Yoder and Tillich, uh, I think what, what I've, I've discovered with them is that they became so famous, so powerful, that they isolated themselves from correction. And, uh, and that was the beginning of their downfall. We need each other. We have the mind of Christ. We need to pursue it with excellence, and we need to pursue it uh, together. Because I'm going to make mistakes, and Dr. Ecker's going to come behind me and correct me. And that's a good thing. So one last question, and then we'll open it up to you guys. So be thinking of your questions. Uh, what, since we're at a library, what works would you recommend on uh, pursuing academic excellence or maybe um, a work that you would recommend that would, um, that shaped your theology um, greatly that you would recommend we read? Yes. Um, <clears throat> I, if, I, if I could do just... One article, it's eight pages long, uh, that I wrote, and it's actually the first publication I have, was written for uh, the Baptist World Alliance, um, and it has to do with excellence, and it has to do with the call of a pastor theologian, and it was published in Southeastern Seminary's journal at the time, Faith and Mission, uh, but it's called To the End of Glorifying Jesus, The Scholar's Calling uh, from the Local Churches. And um, if, if you want to know, just in short, I, and I go back and refer to that periodically, that still captures my own sense of a calling as a scholar and of the pursuit of excellence. And it's, it's really short. Um, but uh, a recent book edited by David Dockery uh, called A Handbook uh, for Theological Education has a whole series of good articles that have to do with theological excellence. Um, and... 
one in particular that I'd like to, uh, uh, to point out to you is by Sarah uh, P. Sander, in uh, which uh, she covers uh, why it is we should be engaged in theology. And, and she gives the biblical and the historical uh, background to, to why we should be pursuing excellence in theology today. And so uh, I recommend Sarah Sanders' uh, essay to you, as well as that, that whole uh, series. Uh, there are a couple of articles by Southeastern Seminary uh, professors, including one by Dr. Aiken in there as well. Um, you know, there are, there are a, a, a series of books. Um, uh, you know, you could think of uh, Kostenberger's uh, book on excellence, uh, where he goes through uh, the virtues, and I think that's a good one uh, to refer to. There are a number of others. Let me recommend to you uh, also to read biographies. I like reading biographies of Christian figures, especially not the hagiography. You know what a hagiography is? That's where you lift this person up and treat them as if they were entirely a saint in every way and they never did anything wrong. Well, that's a lie. Uh, they're human beings. They're, they're, they're failures. Uh, uh, a few years ago, I, I, just, I, I reached the point where I, I had come to the conclusion that I don't have any more heroes. All my heroes are dead because they've all disappointed me in some way. And, and maybe it's because I was looking to human beings to do something that only Jesus can do. Jesus Christ is my hero. He's the only one that has never failed. If you haven't figured it out yet, people will fail you. And what's worse is you will fail you. And you know what I say is true. But Jesus will never fail you, and he's the hero. But you can look at these other people's lives, and you can see how God worked in their lives, and you can garner fruit from that for how you should live your life. And so I find biographies, by the way, not only of Christians, but of others who are not professed Christians. Stefan Zweig uh, is, a, um, is uh, an Austrian novelists that both Dr. Al Mohler and I have a great appreciation for. Why would Dr. Mohler and Dr. Yarnell have a great appreciation for an Austrian uh, Jew who wrote novels in the German language? Because he's got a soul that is so open, and he's got a compelling way of writing. There's a certain excellence in Zweig. There are certain excellencies in the music that you listen to, in the art you see. And Caravaggio happens to be one of the greatest artists in Christian history. Uh, but his own ethics were absolutely horrible. <laughs> I mean, he ended his life on the run because he had murdered a man for uh, not bringing him the chicken he had bought in the way that he thought he should bring it to him. Uh, you know, so I mean, there's... There, there are all these adv adventurous biographies and these pursuits of excellence by people whose work we still respect. What if Christians in the future were known for the excellent lives that you lead today? And excellence for you may not just be writing a book or painting a painting, these things that leave uh, these uh, artifacts that we can see today. It may have to be and probably is more about the child you raised or the person you touched their life because you were excellent in character, they were encouraged to be excellent in character. 
And part of that excellence in character has to do with you being a good academic, bringing your mind, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. So every ounce of your being. I hope you too have a goal in life, and I hope it is to please the Lord Jesus. If it is, live this life, whatever God gives you, whatever his calling upon your life is, live it with excellence.